If you were here with us last week, uh, Jason uh, taught us the different parts to the doxology. And so this morning, uh, Jack Gartman and I are going to sing the different parts. Isn't that what we decided, Jack? You're supposed to say no. We're not going to do that. I thought about maybe asking the elders to come up and to sing all the different parts this morning. But, but the reality, and one of the things that I want us to think through, as we were listening last week, and it was beautiful um, as, as it was put together, and as we heard that, what we were hearing was that there was a, the doxology was written and it was arranged in such a way that when all the parts are sung like they're supposed to be sung, it's beautiful. And this is how it is with music. If I were to take this guitar and just start banging on it, or if I were to invite just a random child from the nursery and give them a guitar and just let them start wailing away, it would be very hard to listen to. But yet, when you know where to put your fingers on the guitar and you start stringing notes together and then start stringing chords together and you do that in the right sequence, something beautiful emerges. This harmony, this order, this music, this song. You were made for a purpose. You were created to sing with your life. Now, I'm not saying that all of you were created to sing in such a way like the worship team. But you were created to live in such a way that when you are living and, and living out that purpose, that your life makes beautiful Beautiful music. But what I'm convinced of. Is that we spend much of our life living like we're just randomly banging on a piano. You may say, what in the world does this text about taxes have to do with singing? Well, just hang in there. Hang in there. Here, towards the end of Jesus' ministry, as we've been walking through in Mark, uh, Jesus' life, and we're here in the last days before He's crucified. And one of the things that I think that we glean from this text is just the chaos around Jesus. I mean, think about it. The, the temple was created as a place where man would go and worship God. And yet, when Jesus walks into this temple, it's chaos. It's not fulfilling its purpose. That Jesus has to go in and cleanse the temple. And even this morning in our text, we have these religious leaders whose, whose job it is to, to teach the ways of God. Whose job it is to be awaiting Messiah. And, and their hopes and dreams are to usher in this Messiah. And yet... And yet, the chaos and reality of what's going on is that Messiah comes and they don't even recognize it. They're out of harmony. They're not fulfilling their purpose. Wasn't this kind of the point of the parable last week? 
That you have a man that creates the perfect condition of a vineyard for vines to grow. And we see the chaos. We see the chaos that when the, the owner of the vineyard sends people to gather the grapes, that there is such chaos that the workers of the vineyard beat the servants and then kill the son. Chaos. Chaos. Now, you have heard this text read, and many of you are familiar with this text. And again, I want you to hear me say, this text is not about taxes. If it were, then we would have made sure that Nick was not in Florida, that he stayed home, and he set up a booth out here so that you could all repent and make sure that you paid the taxes that you owe. Pay the taxes that you owe. <laughs> but it's not about taxes. This, this, this thing that these Pharisees and the Herodians are doing, they just use taxes as a vehicle to try to get at Jesus. And one of the things that we need to see this morning is that this is an intense interaction. This isn't just some... You know, a lot of times we read this and we think in our modern minds of modern day and age and we really don't feel the gravity of what's going on and we need to feel the gravity of what is going on this morning. Look at verse 13. It says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him. This word for trap means to ensnare an animal, to trap an animal for the purpose of eating. This is the mentality. There is a hostile intent by these men. And you may ask, well, who are these men? Well, these men are, I think, uh, at least sent by, maybe some of the same men that we saw as we looked in chapter 11, and starting in verse 27, that they sent some to Jesus. And at the end of that interaction with Jesus, they, Jesus, uh, if you remember, when he kind of turned the question back on them about John the Baptist, and they were kind of silenced. These may have been the same men, or sent by the men who were sitting and listening to the parable that Gary preached on last week. And, oh, by the way, do we remember the end of that account? They were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke that parable against them. These men were here to discredit and to destroy Jesus. Not just to make him look silly, but to destroy him. And so when we get into this text, it's interesting to me the very first thing that happened. They try to butter Jesus up. If you have kids, you've experienced this as a parent. Oh, Dad, you're the greatest dad in the world. What do you want? Right? Listen to how, listen to what's going on here. Listen to these words. They came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful. Literally, what they are saying is, Jesus, we know that you are true. The fountain of truth. Not only that, notice the manipulation. They're trying to catch him in a trap. You defer to no one. You think on your own. You'll surely answer us on your own accord. For you are not partial to any. Literally, literally, this is this phrase that was in common use 
And it's, you do not look on men's faces. You, you don't answer questions. You don't check the political winds and answer questions. You don't look on men's faces to see what they want to hear. No, 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 Jesus. You speak the truth. You don't look to any, but teach the way of God in truth. This is fascinating, isn't it? They're just singing a song. They're singing a song. They're singing a song of deception. Their intentions are evil. And what's fascinating to me as you read this, as they're trying to butter him up with this flattery, that they do the exact opposite of what they're trying to butter Jesus up with. Just one small example. In the last two sermons, one of the things that we saw about these folks is that they feared man. And they did or didn't do things that they wanted to do because of the fear of man. They're hypocrites. Now, let me ask this question. What do you think Jesus was thinking at this point? I think Jesus was like, ooh, they finally got it. You know, that parable about the vineyard hit home. These men are coming. They finally understand who I am and they're coming to me asking legitimate questions. It's not what's going on, is it? If you've been with us in this study, one of the things that you know is that this isn't the first time that Jesus is uh, that people come to Jesus and they try to trick him. And we said many months ago, the problem with trying to get one over on Jesus is this. He knows your thoughts. He knows their hearts. He knows their intentions. Look at verse 15. But he, knowing their hypocrisy... They're not truly questioning. They're not truly coming to Jesus with a legitimate question about paying taxes to get an answer that they're going to follow. They've got evil intentions. And he asks, why are you testing me? I want to make something really clear. Because I think there's, I just want to pause for a second and say there's a danger in this text. And that is this. Sometimes when we see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and in scriptures that we've covered like over the past three weeks and that we'll continue to cover, that sometimes we can get this image of Jesus being short and angry and and really kind of going at you. And so we kind of get timid about our questions as well. But I want you to remember that that's that's not who this Jesus is. This is the same Jesus that we saw earlier in Mark that over and over was teaching in the synagogue. And he was teaching to men and women who who weren't quite understanding who he was, but were coming to him because they were hearing about how wonderful of a teacher he is, how he taught with authority and how he was healing many. and, And they would sit and they would listen to him and Jesus would sit and he would teach. Or what about, remember when Jesus was in the boat and the crowds were coming because of all the miracles that he had done? And remember him uttering this phrase, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And it says that he fed them, that he sat and he taught them. 
Think about the patience of Jesus in, in teaching these folks. And he is patient and he is kind. And a couple of weeks ago, I noted this, but I just want to bring it back up to your attention. What about when Nicodemus came to him at night and Jesus sat and took time with Nicodemus? This is who Jesus is. But what we see in this text is that there was something else going on. That Jesus was being attacked and they had evil intentions. And Jesus, Jesus was going to expose their hypocrisy. Taxes. Look at verse 14. Here's how they're trying to trap him. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Verse 15. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now. This is a massive issue. This is a really, really big deal. They are coming to Jesus trying to destroy him. And this is an issue this is a trap that they had set, set that if Jesus steps into it in a, in a wrong way would bring big trouble upon him and his followers. And what you need to see, we're going to go into the context in which this was written. This is not just dealing with the IRS, which is a pain in the neck. But this is way, 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 way more intense as we've been studying in the book of Mark, one of the things that we have constantly kind of come back around to was that there was this tension that God's people, the Jews, were, were living in the land. They were, they were living in Jerusalem. They were living in these surrounding areas, but they weren't free, were they? That they were under Roman captivity. That Rome was, was, was in control. They were captive. Now, they had a lot of freedom. They were free to worship. Rome even uh, put over them uh, the king of the Jews, Herod. They had some rights, but, but there was always this tension. They weren't sovereign. They weren't free. They were under captivity. And then there was, there was this idea of taxes. And if you've been with us through the book of Mark... One of the things that we've known is that one of the things that the Jewish people hated, one of the people, class of people they hated almost more than anything, were tax collectors. The system wasn't a good one. People were cheated. They were manipulated. And what's interesting is it, there were these different levels of taxes. Herod, Herod who had been appointed king or ruler over the Jews from Rome certainly had his taxes that he was imposing upon them. But it was almost as if they could kind of stomach those taxes. Yes, there was abuse. Yes, Herod was getting very rich off that. But also Herod was doing things like rebuilding the temple. It was kind of what we hear in modern day. Of, ah, you know, I don't like paying taxes, but you know, they fixed the roads. The schools are a little bit better. Right? We see the abuse that takes place, but we kind of pass it off. It was quite another thing when Rome, when Rome was instituting a poll tax 
onto a people who were already heavily taxed and Rome was coming in itself and taking more money out of their pockets. The Jewish people were being squeezed. And they felt like this was a horrible, horrible thing. And how to deal with this tragedy became a really big deal. So you probably you had one group that would say, hey, listen, we're just going to trust God and keep our heads down and pay the taxes. We're not going to make any waves because they'll come in here and just crush us. We just need to live quietly and pay our taxes. We had other groups, and it's interesting, the Herodians are here who were really snuggling up next to Herod, who were against Rome, against the taxes, but were hoping that Herod could come in and salvage the day. And then, like, like any divided people, you had this other extreme. There was this man, this, this comes from the writings of an early historian, Josephus, there was this man called Judas of Galilee. And Judas of Galilee had started this revolt And what he would say is, listen, Jews, listen, people of God, you have to make a choice. Are you going to obey God or are you going to give money to Caesar? You can't worship two masters. What are you going to do? And there are accounts that this man, Herod of Galilee, and his posse would go around. And if they found out that you had paid this tax to Caesar, that they may burn your home and kill your livestock. It's also thought that it was because of this man and because of this revolution that was certainly in full-blown fever going on during this time that the Jewish-Gentile war got started through this sort of thing. And this is the time in which we see in about 60 to 75 where things like this happened, that whole Jewish towns were demolished. Jewish people were displaced. And ultimately, ultimately the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. This was a big deal. This was a big deal. There was a lot of pressure. And so these men coming to Jesus with this question, it wasn't a light question. It was going to get him in hot water no matter how he answered the question. And I can't imagine maybe being a disciple and sitting and hearing this and say, "Uh uh-oh. How's he going to answer this? How is he going to answer this? Let's look at his answer, but let me be clear. If we look at 1 Peter and Romans and we take this passage into account, pay your taxes. That's what Jesus says, pay your taxes. Paul says it, Peter says it, pay your taxes. But again, this isn't about taxes. And it's interesting because Jesus doesn't really answer the question. And he does something just amazing. Look at verse 15. I love this. He says, why are you testing me? So so the first thing that he says is, hey, look, I know the game you're trying to play and it's not working. Why are you testing me? And then he does something real interesting. And he says, bring me a denarius, bring me a coin. Now, this is speculation, pure speculation. Jesus doesn't have any money. He has to tell these religious leaders, go get me a coin. And when I think about this, two thoughts come to my mind. One thought is this. 
you know, Jesus, it is said that Jesus had no place to lay his head. He had no home. He was depending upon his father. Remember when he sent the disciples out on their trial run ministry that they didn't take money with them, that he wanted them to be dependent upon God. And, and, and isn't it interesting that he didn't have any money, but he looked at these religious people and said, hey, give me a coin. There's also a thought, this is speculation, but there's also a thought that if he was in the temple, that it was illegal to have Roman coins in the temple, and here Jesus was abiding by the rules, but hey, look, the hypocritical religious leaders had a coin. Speculation. But notice everything turns, notice everything turns on this next phrase. Look at verse 16. They brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness, I, I want to use this word because it's a better word, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. You see, the coin, the Roman coin, would have had a picture, a depiction of Caesar on it. And it was meant to, so that you could see, and you could see who the most powerful an important man that there was. Caesar. And in fact, we know, because these have been unearthed, that we know what the inscription was. The inscription was, Son of the, Div of the Div Divine Augustus. Another way of saying this is, Son of God. Deifying Caesar. Deifying the Roman leaders. And I love what is said here in verse 17. Give it back. It's his, give it back to him. Now, one of the things you may miss because of the way that things are translated in this passage is this. Earlier, when they're asking the question... It's better translated this. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar? Shall we give or shall we not give? When Jesus responds, He doesn't say give it to Him. He says give it back to Him. It's His. Give it back. Again, getting at this idea of authority... It's his money, it's his coin, it's his medal. If he wants it, give it back to him. So what's interesting, what's interesting, if we just stop here, which I think is where many people stop, we miss something really, really, really big. And we simply walk away saying, hey, you know what? Our dependence isn't on money. The government issues money. We give it back to them and we just are going to go on our happy way. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus exposes these men's hypocrisy. Hear this. And give back to God the things that are God's.
What is God's? One of the things that we could say, and we would be right, is that everything is God's. And so it may even confuse you because you would say, well, wait a minute, those coins are God's. I mean, God's, God's the creator of everything. It, the, the earth and everything that in it are God's. And is that a right answer? Yes, that is a right answer. But remember what's lingering, what Jesus said. Whose image is on it? That's why it's important to know the word, I think, that is used. And I think what Jesus is saying to these religious people. That which has the image of God on it, give back to God. And what has the image of God on? Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says this. Same word, same word that Jesus uses here as image. Whose image? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image. And then in Genesis chapter 5, it says that he created man in the image of God. Same word. And then again in Genesis 9, when it's talking about murder... He's saying that man, that God made man in his image. And so what I think that Jesus is saying here is give Caesar back his money, but give yourselves to God. I want to quote Augustine on this this passage. He says this, we are God's money, but we are like coins that have wandered away from the treasury. What was once stamped upon us has been worn down by our wandering. The one who restamps his image upon us is the one who first formed us. He himself seeks his own coin as Caesar sought his coin. It is in this sense, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. To Caesar his coins and to God your very self. The gospel goes all the way back to creation. The good news of the gospel goes all the way back to creation. That we were created in His image. That God created. He created us. And that because of sin, that we were separated from God. Like Augustine said, we were wandering. We were separated. We were people that was created in His image for a purpose a purpose of reflecting His glory and who He is to the world. And we were separated because of sin. And here in this passage, in just a few days, we have Jesus going to the cross to buy us back so that we can fulfill our purpose. So that we can be connected to God and to be His people. To live with Him forever. Galatians 2.20 says that we've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but it's Jesus that lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live to Him. 
you see these men, their hypocrisy was exposed. They were living for their own kingdom. They were living for their own glory. They were not living for God. And Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. They weren't singing. They were just noisy cymbals and banging gongs. They weren't in harmony. They weren't living out their purpose. What about you? What about you? Who or what are we living for? What is your purpose? What is your part in the orchestra of God? One of the ways that we discern what our part is is that we we were made to live in such a way that the thing that motivates us and compels us in this world is the love of God. This passage is moving towards um, verse 30 and 31 where it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And if you've been in church for very long, you know that the only way that we can love is because God has first loved us. And so that we were made, we were made to live and to be motivated by the love of God. These men that were coming to trap Jesus, were they coming to trap him? Were they compelled by the love of God? Was Judas of Galilee, was he compelled by the love of God to burn fellow Jewish people's homes and to kill their cattle? The love of God compels us to be salt and light in this world. And we do this in such a way that we bring the message of hope that Christ has been crucified, that you can be reconciled to God. That we, that love should compel us in such a way to do this in the world so that just maybe, just maybe we may add to the band. Secondly, secondly, the way you sing, are you faithful with what you've been given? A lot of times I sit with men who are trying to figure out their purpose. In fact, maybe as I even opened up this morning and talked about purpose, that you're like, yeah, i got to figure that out. This job I'm doing, I don't think this is my purpose. Or, or you know, and then we go through all these things. And what I want to say is, is that I've figured out your purpose. Your purpose is to be faithful with what God has given you. I don't know what that means for you tomorrow, what that means for you next week, what that means about the next job or what it means for you in retirement. But what I do know is that you and I are called to be faithful. And that many people get paralyzed because we're so wondering and worrying about what we are to do 10 days a year from now and that we're not faithful with what God has given us today. 
God has given some of you a job. Some of you he has given retirement. Some of you he has given spouses. Some of you he has given children. Some of you he has given neighbors. Some of you he has given money. He's given all of us time and talents. And we are called to be faithful. It's how we sing. You see, when we're compelled by love, day by day, to faithfully give of what we've been given, we sing the most beautiful song there is. We sing the most beautiful song there is. And you were created to sing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that we would be a people that sing. A people whose lives so reflect your love and your glory and a people that view it as their job in this world to be faithful with what they've been given. To give back to you what we've been given. That when people view our lives, they see hope. Because they see something beautiful. That's not in us. That is because of what you have done. God, help us to be this kind of people. Help us to be this kind of church. It's only possible through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.